0: Welcome to episode 10 of Learn Me Right with Dr. Christopher Rudge. Thank you so much for being here with us today to speak about your research. Are you able to, first of all, just give us a bit of a background into your current position?
1: Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm a lecturer, uh, fairly junior in my second year of lecturing, although I finished my PhD in 2014, lecturer at uh, the law school at Sydney University. Now I'm also a more general researcher in health law.
2: Thank you. Uh, So I have some rapid fire questions for you. The first is, what are your pronouns? He and him. Thank you. Highlight of the year of 2023 so far?
1: Well, it's quite early in the year. I did have a paper uh, that looks to be. Oh, I have one paper accepted, which was great in Australian Health Review, um, and I'm. I'm another one looks to be almost accepted. they two good highlights. Congratulations! In, in, thank you. In my that's, academic career, there's other that, highlights. That's um, awesome. One will come in March in the form of my uh, baby son.
2: Oh, <laughs> oh well, that's
1: yeah, that's, <laughs> so that's so that's a highlight. That
2: is an ongoing highlight. <laughs> wow. Oh. Thank you. Um, now, a bit more simplistic, but what is your coffee order?
1: So I'm loving uh, an espresso at the moment. Um, I'm really becoming um, more obsessed with um, dialing in brewing. So, you know, getting the extraction right. Um yes. et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm doing that at home and I'm ordering it at the cafe as well.
2: Good for you. Good for you. I'm more of a batch brew kind of gal myself, so I do understand the technicalities of it has to be perfect or I'm not drinking it. Whereas I drink instant yeah.
0: coffee. Yeah.
2: <laughs> We've had many debate about Ruthie's instant coffee in the office. <laughs> Finally, uh, what would you sing at karaoke?
1: Uh, you know, there's so many wonderful songs, but one song that I, I'm hopelessly sentimentally um, attached to is um, Brian Adams' Heaven. Brilliant. <laughs> <Such> a nerdy <laughs> song. Uh, my mum's Canadian. Brian Adams is Canadian. Uh, so there might be something to that. But um, I think it's such a great karaoke song. It's got a I'm, I'm huge... The it's the one... It's it, the lyric. I won't sing it. <laughs> please please um, sing for the, the, the lyric of the chorus is, Baby, you're all that I want When you're lying here in my arms Finding it hard to believe we're in heaven. <laughs> See,
2: I think the lyrics might be familiar, but it would help There's if I a had cover. a tune. There's been some covers of that song, so yeah, yeah.
1: A Well, oh, We'll no. have to do karaoke, and you'll 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 either be reminded or or hear the song. For the okay, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: Brilliant. Now that was a lot of fun. Let's get to the substantive part of the podcast. So, our first question for you is: What is your current research problem? and topic that you are investigating in your
1: research well um it's interesting because my research as i've said is kind of uh, in not in not uh, related to the development of the science i mean because that happens you know parallel to my research and scientists are doing that what i'm doing is responding to the emergence of new treatments in science and commenting on both the legal and uh, to a lesser extent, the bioethical and biopolitical um, challenges that these new treatments pose, both to regulators and to kind of social policy and, and government policy making. Um, and so, I have homed in on a few uh, treatments recently, and um, uh, one is an example of um, human genome editing, um, called. Uh, somatic cell genome editing. You isolate the stem cells um, and then you can reinfuse them so they're your own cells and you re-infuse them back into your own body. Isolating the stem cells from the fat cells and re-infusing them was thought through the regenerative medicine and is still thought to some extent to possibly have some good effects on its own. But what somatic cell genome editing does um, in a range of s- treatments, doesn't only do this, but in in the case I'm describing, um, is once it's uh, extracted those fat cells, you then uh, isolate the stem cells. And then even after you've done that step, you then edit the human DNA in these stem cells, specifically in a way that you have, um, you know, kind of formulated according to your scientific research um, and pursuant to doing a particular thing with respect to the DNA, to alter it in a kind of um, programmatic way or a designed way, as it were. And you then, once the DNA in these cells has been edited, you reinfuse them in the body and you you're aiming for the changes in the DNA in those cells uh, to alleviate a dysfunction or disorder in the body. Um, so it is it is quite complicated, and there's so much more I could say in terms of specifics, but this is a completely new way of doing medicine, um, and there are huge uh, challenges technically, but there are also some huge risks. Um, two that I'll just mention, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the two most popular risks or popularly discussed risks in relation to genome editing, and this includes somatic cell genome editing, which I'm describing, um, are called, one, off-target effects and two, mosaicism. So take them one at a time. One, off-target effects is when you are trying to edit the DNA in a cell in a particular way, but you unintentionally edit the DNA in another way that you didn't foresee and then upon reinfusing those cells those edited cells into the body you obviously discover hopefully by then it's too late hopefully you discover before through looking at the biomarkers of the cells to determine what the dna changes have been but if you went to the point of reinfusing them and you've had these off target edits a new disease totally unknown in nature might arise because you've created something completely novel, potentially, if you've created a range of DNA changes that haven't yet existed in humans, or you might create some known other disease that exists as well by virtue of creating a range of DNA mutations that weren't there before. So they're the unintended or off-target effects that could arise. The second big risk is an interesting one called mosaicism. This is where you might make the intended DNA changes and then reinfuse the cells into the body of the patient but those changes might only um, be taken on by the body in particular cells so you might actually have unedited cells combined with edited cells so that in any one organ or in any one part of the body or in the entire body you have two sets of dna in effect um, now, that condition is often described as mosaicism because you can, you've can you got a mosaic of different cellular DNA. And um, that is a disease in itself. Mosaicism is kind of a catch-all term for a particular range of genetic diseases. Some people are born mosaic, interestingly. But you can also create mosaicism um, through this uh, process potentially. So it's, a, it's an extremely challenging um, medical innovation but also extremely promising. And so my research is looking at the science as it's developing, but also responding to it by saying, hang on, there are risks that need to be managed by regulation, by law and by medical practice oversight, another form of regulation. And uh, thankfully, there's a kind of effective pause on these treatments because there is a, In Australia and most other countries, there is a an express prohibition on genome editing. Um, At least insofar as the edits you make are heritable. (laughs) Now, when it comes to somatic cell genome editing, that might not be heritable. In other words, you might have this treatment done when you're an adult, and you, because you're fully developed and your gametes, your germline cells, i.e. the cells that are responsible for reproduction, are not affected uh, fundamentally by these postnatal, post-birth edits, you wouldn't pass them down to your children. So it's unclear actually whether the uh, somatic cell genome editing would be um, prohibited at the moment. I would actually think it is not, but the general prohibition on genome editing is quite a Um, strict one. And that has tended to make researchers extremely careful about any form of genome editing. And therefore, we've had an effective pause, or at least a lot of caution around these treatments. And we haven't yet seen um, any experimental uh, kind of scandals (laughs) going on in private clinics. But I'm looking at that horizon, and I'm commenting on what we can do um and what is possible in our existing regulatory systems uh to protect ourselves against this stuff so that's a (laughs) long-winded answer but um
2: excellent um so I just wanted to recap what you've said just to make sure we're on the same page and um what you're pointing out is that we now have theoretically and somewhat pragmatically the ability to edit genes or edit DNA in cells for therapeutic purposes so let's just outline here that we're not talking about you know the, the catch-all controversial phrase designer babies we're mm-hmm. talking about people with actual genetic conditions that is causing a pathology or an interference with their lives um so the treatment is consented to generally by an adult and it is limited to that adult themselves
1: that's right and that's the that's one i'm kids discussing kids. we yeah. can certainly discuss uh <laughs> DNA edits as well yeah um, but uh but i'm interested in the adult ones because they look to be um you know further along than than, uh, both in terms of the, you know, legality as well as the um, medical evidence than than anything in relation to heritable DNA editing. And we are talking about therapies, exactly. Yeah.
2: And you're also looking at the balancing act between these potentially really high reward therapies. So these therapies are meant to be more of a cure for the underlying condition rather than just sort of treating the symptoms. So it's a it's a one fix all. It happens once, and then that that you know we've we've technically cured that particular pathology. However, it's also high risk, is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I mean that's the you know panacea.
2: <laughs>
1: the idea is that this. You know, we always have to wait until these things are kind of rolled out in a in a in a population. I think to really understand, even though the clinical trials can be excellent, Um, yes, the cures are uh, are interesting things because most treatments have side effects. I mean, there's no cure that's not. I, there are very few known cures that are kind of you know real, one hundred percent. You know. N- Reversals of of some of some condition back to a, a former state of of, yeah. of the cellular function, as it were. But um, for example, in the case of sickle cell disease, um, which is a group of genetic disorders of the red blood cells that affect um, you know hundreds of thousands of people. I think it's around one hundred thousand people in the in the US are affected. And 25 million people globally are affected by sickle cell disease. And effectively, due to, um, you know, a a lack of oxygen pressure in your red blood cells, they shrink um, and polymers are created and they become this kind of sharp sickle shape, the red blood cells, instead of a spherical shape. So there is a treatment now in which you can use genome editing to um, effectively remove the uh, molecule that creates the shrinking of these blood cells or the contortion of these blood cells and you can produce more hemoglobin at the level of DNA and and by, by instructing you know the dna to produce more of this fetal hemoglobin the the contorted cells the shrunk cells are restored to their normal shape the reason that sickle cell disorders are are problematic in most cases is because when you've got these cells that are in this misshapen physical you know um
0: uh, when they are
1: yeah when they're in that shape they block they block um you know the the vascular circulation, so you get these occlusions in your arteries, and once they're restored to their spherical, nice shape, there's no longer these blood occlusions, these vasoocclusive crises, and so you you create um, restored health, um, and and so you you're, you're designing a treatment in which the DNA changes are uh, uh, create a physical change in your cells. That then um, removes the uh, dysfunction, uh, which is the product of a physical problem in this in in the red blood cells.
0: absolutely And because as you say, it is so complex and there are those sort of risks that you mentioned earlier, those unintended effects and the mosaicism um, and in terms of that pause that you mentioned for us to consider how we move forward in a regulatory sense, can you talk a little bit about how you see that? Playing out, how do you think that governments, for example, in Australia, should respond in terms of regulation via law or policy, or how we might impact medical or clinical practice? Um,
1: well, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this. So, so we're not even at the point of really. Well, we are at the point of of articulating substantive regulatory recommendations, but to get to that point, we had methodological anterior questions and these included how do we you know best what's the best practice for determining um the way forward in relation to such potentially transformative um, medical treatments as this given that the ramifications of these treatments both are so huge these ramifications are so huge it it cannot be just for lawyers or boffins in the academe, you know, carrying on in these corridors, having little kind of specialist conversations, et cetera. And it cannot just be for the medical scientists or the health practitioners to determine the way in which um, patients can or cannot, or should or should not access these treatments, or should be sheltered, or not sheltered, but protected from these treatments. Um, we need to engage with people outside of these specialist spheres so the Australian citizens jury on genome editing was an attempt to run a best practice uh, deliberative democratic process by which we reach out into the world into into our communities and try and listen to their views now the problem was obviously that knowledge gap and that process took a year or more in terms of actually analysing that data from this citizen's jury. Um, It was held down in uh, the Old Parliament House in Canberra. And, you know, 24 Australians, some who were older, some who were younger, some who were in, you know, I guess, minority populations, a diverse range of people brought together. And, you know, we ran it, we were there for a week in Old Parliament House, and we ran a project it was basically a pilot nothing like that has occurred in the world before we got all of that feedback and we have now put out a report um, which makes recommendations to law and policymakers about what should be done to ensure that these transformative innovative therapies are not kind of you know just given free reign to be experimented on in, in society and or and on the other hand you know that they are also made available um to uh to all those who who need it not just those with the wealth or the you know access you know privileges to to get them and so there's a whole number of um different uh lines of um regulatory justice that we wanted to capture the value of that of that project was that you're really attempting to um uh understand the concerns of um people from different walks of life and different um stages of their life and di- in different health backgrounds etc and um and so it's a work in progress. Um, so I can go to some of the substantive ideas, but that was as I said, the anterior question for us through this project was to get um the right people involved in determining the next steps in terms of regulation. But of course, with any medical treatment, the two main things are safety and efficacy.
0: Well, that's absolutely brilliant that you've involved lay people. I think that's so important. And I think as a society, we're kind of really recognising it, that's really important.
1: Of course, I came to it from a very... um, I wanted to see the substantive legal recommendations. I I was interested in hearing, you know, what do you think the law should be? If someone did this without permission, how long should they be in prison for, (laughs) et cetera? You know, I was really like, what are we going to write in the law? Um, But, of course, you know, it doesn't really work that way. You cannot ask... uh, you know there's a lot of pre um you know kind of um research needed to get to those outcomes and so it was very valuable to do that
0: i i'm not really much of a sports fan i do like a bit of sport but i'm going to try and use a sport analogy here so bear with me so i guess what you're saying essentially is that it's like we're designing a whole new sport there's a whole new game and there's a whole bunch of people who have to come in and have input into what the rules and sort of boundaries of that might even look like um, before actually getting into the to the nitty gritty of of the regulatory kind of tools that are going to exist. It's a sort of before, um, before that point, we're kind of just considering um, that didn't make sense. What are, the,
2: <laughs> where, where it us, what are the boundaries that we need to be yeah. considered and, and where do we draw those lines and who gets to draw those lines, mm. which is really important.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting analogy because you'd be looking at yes um what are the rules and um and and how can we participate safely and achieve that outcome um legitimately and and in a way that includes everyone in that participatory group how do they all get that outcome and how do they all access the sport itself you know um how can anyone who wants to play through the rule making and so forth get to play yeah. um so so there's a huge number of um Uh, rules, both inside the game once you're there, but also preparatory to the game to get people there and and so forth.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's really interesting. Great, uh, great (laughs) analogy, Ruthie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have one final question for you, and it's, what can the ordinary person do to help in this particular situation? Or um, what knowledge can the ordinary person have in order to better help in this particular space in their community?
1: So basically, you know, I think it's always important to stay advised or abreast of the new developments in medical research, but also to rely on uh, trusted experts in the medical profession um, and specialists within, um, you know, the kind of uh, clinics and and hospitals to, um, you know, discuss the treatment options. I think it's important also to um, speak to, you know, specialists in medical practice, about um, potential new treatments and the risks associated with them too so that's a long-winded way of saying you know um, look at the future of research medical research with hope but maintain um, a healthy uh you know kind of skepticism about new treatments as well
2: that's completely fair we don't want to overpromise and then disappoint when we don't meet
0: those expectations Brilliant. Thank you so, so, so much. It's been lovely to speak with you. Thank you very much for your time coming on to talk to us about your research today. Thank you. Again, thank you. <laughs>
1: absolute really absolute privilege to be included. I am a fan of the podcast. I think you're doing a terrific job. And I hope that you and your listeners enjoy and and, and took something from today. Please uh don't hesitate to contact me. Um, you know, uh, my email is Christopher sydney.edu.au if anyone wishes to contact Uh, but thank you for listening to me today
2: oh (laughs) (laughs) absolutely pleasure yeah all (laughs) righty see ya
1: yes thanks